Hello and welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwick for Painless Networking here. Check us out at www.painless.network for more on taking the pain out of networking. And the idea for these Painless Podcasts is very simple. It's about connecting with good human beings in and around sports and event marketing. And it's not just sound bites, but conversations with smart, interesting, and generous people who share with us how and why they've reached the success they've had and how networking and mentoring in particular have shaped their careers. All right, one, one quick sec before we learn about some more about esports from Rev XP's Dan Ciccone and Ken Olson. We've got a quick thanks to our sponsor for making this podcast possible. That's a heads up that Spike Ball Nationals are coming to Chicago on October 14th. If you haven't listened to the Painless Pod episode four with Chris Reuter, Spike Ball CEO, put that one next in your feed. I'm telling you, it's a great one. It's got some great stuff from Chris about restarting Spike Ball and in about five years turning it into a seven million dollar a year business. Now, in a special offer to painless members and podcast listeners, you can save 50% on getting your team registered for the tournament. Use the code painless, full link is in the pod description, or you can get there via www.usaspikeball.com. And we are off to a great start on the Painless Podcast Network sister pod, The Fade Away with Dion and Eric. Features all-time Illini basketball great, still the leading scorer in Illinois history, Dion Thomas, and veteran reporter and host Eric Schmidt. They, uh, in episode one, we catch up with what Dion's been up to. Episode two is a terrific conversation with Illinois coaching legend Lou Henson. The next episode comes up tomorrow, August 24th, and it's featuring new Illinois women's coach, Nancy Fahey, multiple-time national championship winner at Division Three Wash U, now bringing her game to Illinois. Great stories and conversation there. Check the Painless feed for all fadeaway episodes. All right. It's eSports time with Dan Ciccone and Ken Olson. Dan is the managing director, and Ken is the director of strategic partnerships and activations at RevXP. They're a uh, national leader, I would say, in the exploding eSports space, particularly working around the eSports talent. I thought it would be a a really good idea to take a deeper dive into eSports, as so many folks I'm talking to about eSports. Uh, you know, it's kind of a consensus. I know esports are big, but what the heck really is esports and where's it going? So, Dan and Ken help break that down for us some today. You can connect with Dan or Ken on LinkedIn. They're also active on Twitter. Dan does have his own Twitter handle, but is really um, uh, operates under the RevXP esports handle. Well, Ken is Mr. Kenny O. Good stuff. The uh, agency website. Nice and simple, www.revxp.com. That's R-E-V-X-P.com. All right, enough of me. Let's uh, let's hear some more about esports. Recorded August 17th. Let's get connected with Dan Ciccone and Ken Olson. Welcome to the Painless Podcast today with Dan Ciccone and uh, Ken Olson. Dan is the managing director at RevXP in Chicago, and Ken is the, uh, give me a minute and a half here to spell this out, the director of strategic partnerships and activations. I get that right, Ken? Yes, sir. All right, good. Give, give us, before we, we dive in, um, you know, we already rattled off your titles. What, what the heck is, uh, what is RevXP? 
uh, and, and what are you guys doing uh, right now on a day-to-day basis? But very simply, we are a talent management and full-service marketing agency that is solely dedicated to esports. So we represent a number of top teams and individuals in the space, but then we also lean into Revolution for full production services, whether it's shooting TV commercials, event activations, research, social listening. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we do on our own, but that's in a nutshell what we do. And so there, you're an arm of the Revolution Agency, correct? Yes and no. Okay. So, I mean, we're, we are a standalone company. Okay. And again, we're solely dedicated to esports. I think where we are really different is that we are a talent representation agency. So Revolution as a whole does not represent any talent, um, but Rev XP. And when you say talent, then that is esports teams, individuals. Uh, we're actually working with some publications in the space as well, hmm. which we can get into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really kind of across the board. So we work with individual players. We work with team owners, teams to help them secure sponsorship, PR, business management, business development. Um, but then we also work with a publication like Deserto, which is, I guess you would call it a lifestyle publication of esports. So we've, uh, I think we've got some very deep relationships across the industry, whether it's now while we represent teams and players, we do have very deep relationships with the leagues and the publishers, Major League Gaming, Activision. Um, we're starting to build some relationships with, with Blizzard, but that's, that's where we sit in, in, in the space. And when you where you're represent the talent, then is that to um, brands? Is that to... The, the leagues you mentioned you work with, like you, do you do all of that? How, how do you, you know, what's the different kind of work that you would do for, if you've got an example, what would, you know, can you give us an example of what that would be? Yeah, actually, it totally depends on the team and or the player. We get involved as much or as little as they want us to. So there are certain teams and individuals that we work with strictly on a sponsor representation standpoint. So we seek... Uh, and or negotiate sponsorship opportunities for individuals and teams. Uh, there are other rep- there are other teams that we represent where we actually help them with business development. We review contracts. We re- and that could be with a league. That could be with a sponsor. Um, that could be with one of the unions that that's formed within the space. So again, it really varies by the different teams and individuals. But we pretty much get involved in negotiation from every standpoint. We're we are no different than a traditional sports agent. Hmm. And and how long have you been? How long has RevXP been in place and focusing on esports? RevXP came into being. Uh, I actually launched my own esports agency a few years ago called Next Gen MVPs. I used to work for IPL, which was IGN Pro League, as well as Major League Gaming. Through those two positions, I was able to meet a lot of team owners and individuals in the space. And the more involved I got, uh, I just saw some very uneven monetary exchanges taking place. Mm -hmm. I thought the amount of money that the teams and the individuals were taking for their sponsor deals was heavily weighted in favor of the sponsor and not with the team. Um, And also just started looking at my traditional background in media sponsorship and, and sports that 
the best way to approach esports was through the lens of sport and not through the lens of gaming, which is a whole other discussion in and of itself. Right. So um, through Next Gen MVPs, I actually signed Optic Gaming, which is one of the premier teams within esports. And we came in one afternoon, uh, again, taking the approach of sports, Revolution being one of the biggest sports marketing agencies in the Midwest, called up John Rawati and said, hey, wanted to know if esports is even on your guys' radar. Fortunately, John gave us the opportunity to come in and pitch. Had an awesome turnout. There were probably about 50 people from the agency that showed up. Um, it was a very, it was a very fluid conversation. I wouldn't even call it a presentation, even though we were using, you know, the old stand and pitch PowerPoint. It was very much a discussion that unfolded. A lot of engagement, a lot of questions, a lot of follow up, follow up phone calls, and um, John literally just kind of called me into the office one day and said, "Hey, love what you're doing in the space." love the direction this is all going. You seem to know what the hell you're doing. Um, what would you think if we could put some additional resources can't, behind you? can't see the smirk he has on his face when he says so. seems to know what he's doing. But, but like I said, uh, you know, Revolution has a whole suite of services that we thought would complement what we were trying to do as, as an agent agency. So that's when we formed RevXP. And so how long ago was that? It's not that was Octo ago. No, that was October of 2015. So, yeah, I launched the agency in January of 2015. We created RevXP in October of 2015. Wow. And it doesn't feel like two years, yet sometimes it really does. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's, I think we'll come back to that too. It's just, there's been a, just an explosion, just the, from out of nowhere, really, of the sophistication and participation and the dollars spent in esports. So the two years feels, you know, it's dog years at least, right? So yeah, I actually wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago about the fact that to your point, there's absolutely a lot of what I would call mainstream attention on esports over the last year. The reality is it's been around for close to 20 years. I would argue that there's been structure and organization over the last five to eight years that's been unrecognized in the space. It's really not the wild, wild west that everyone keeps referring to it as. I think there are probably a lot of VC companies. Um, there are now eSport experts popping up out of the woodwork claiming that they know quite a bit about the space. But the reality is that it, it's been pretty well structured for a while now. A lot of the leagues are very well established. The distribution platforms are pretty well established. Um, but what has not been established is how do you bring esports to mainstream brands and get them to participate in the space? So it's like a, a band that's had overnight success, but been around for 20 years. And yeah, I mean, I, I think your example of using a band as an analogy is a good one. The reality is the audience has been there for the last 15 years. There's been a really hardcore 18 to 34 year old audience. And I don't even call it underground. Uh, it's very well established. The audience has been huge. The audience has been engaged. It's just getting on mainstream media's radar right now. We, we kind of look at it like NASCAR was 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. The UFC was 15 years ago, right? It had a very well-established audience, and it wasn't really until it caught the attention of mainstream media that it started to blow out. And I think we're kind of in the middle of that right now. I think what we're seeing, as far as the audience is concerned, it's still very hardcore, I would say 13 to 34-year-old heavy male. But we'll see over the next few years that it's definitely going to expand, not only in the demographic, um, you know, you'll see more women coming into the space, 
purely from an audience standpoint. I, I truly believe esports will actually wind up becoming the first um, the first sport that is inclusive of both genders without actually having to create a separate female yeah, team. Right. You know, I, I think we can easily see with whether it's one of the teams we work with or in the space, even though it's predominantly dominated by men, that if a woman with this good enough skills comes into the space or shows interest, that she'll just jump onto a team with a bunch of <laughs> with a bunch of dudes, and it's really not going to be that 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 big of a deal. Um, but like I said, the the audience, I think, will start to see more women participating, and you'll probably see that demographic start to broaden a little bit. Ken, yep. where the heck are you from? Well, I'm from Chicago, um, <laughs> specifically. But, uh, you know, I... Uh, I Disclaimer I, is, Ken has been ruined because... Uh, take it all with a grain of salt because he used to work for me. So he's, he's probably damaged goods for those of you who don't <laughs> already know him. But seriously, um, yeah, I mean, how, how did you come into this? Yeah, well, I, I think we were talking about this before we started up, but everyone kind of takes their own path in this business. And I'm sure I'm certainly an example of that. So... Uh, yeah, I started off uh, just kind of cutting my teeth uh, from an experiential standpoint, uh, working at Marketing Works, um, you know, with you specifically on the Verizon account. Um, also uh, touched on uh, some PlayStation business and a variety of different things. Cut my teeth uh, doing experiential work. Uh, eventually decided that I want to work for an agency that had more service offerings just so that I could dabble in uh, different pieces of the business. And that's when I landed at Revolution. Um, worked on a variety of, uh, of uh, accounts with brands uh, that had um, you know, sports sponsorships that they wanted to leverage for their marketing efforts. And then uh, through that, I was actually in the meeting that Dan referenced just a minute I was just ago. say, was that yeah. the connection? You were one of the four dozen people. It was, meeting, yeah. Right? Yeah, so it was, it was pretty eye-opening for me, um, especially because I, I think you kind of alluded to this earlier. It's, it's a huge ecosystem within itself, esports and the community, um, massive followings on social media, and you don't see it until you see it. And uh, that meeting for me was eye-opening in the sense that uh, Hector Rodriguez, Nate Shot, um, and a couple of the other pros came in with Dan that day. And uh, as he mentioned, there was a bunch of people in the audience. And uh, frankly, a lot of the folks from the agency side didn't really know much about gaming. And I was somebody, I've been a gamer my entire life. My uncle worked for Konami and was bringing me Excite Bike and different games on Nintendo when I was you know, like five years old. Um, so you know, I played Call of Duty. And he had a bunch of Call of Duty pros here, um, but I didn't know who the heck they were. And I was somebody that was playing, you know, maybe. So even as a gamer yeah, at that point, you and a marketer, you you were aware that there was something like this out there, but this wasn't like, oh, you knew each one of these guys by name on the no, team, I, right? No, no, I had heard like rumblings that there were tournaments and that people were making money, money off of this, but I, I had no idea the scope of what was actually happening. Um, so I, after that meeting, I got on Wikipedia. I'm like, who is Nate Shot? What is this? How much money are these guys really making? What is this Dan guy doing? Like, how does sponsorship figure into this? So then when he had conversations with John, I raised my hand right away, and I was like, this is something that I absolutely want to be involved in. Um, and from there, it just kind of rapidly progressed, um, just kind of leveraging some relationships that I have and people that I know. Um, we were able to kind of gain a lot of momentum, um, and not just because of me, Dan, as well. I don't want to make it seem that way. <laughs> I'll definitely take more credit for yeah, that. Yeah, right? I mean, following Dan's lead, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, it, it, that's that's kind of where I'm from, you know, just kind of 
Trudging Forward with, within the uh, the sponsorship realm has been a cool, fun experience, and working with the teams and players is it's a, it's a gas. It's a lot of fun. Now, when you mention those those couple of guys, is that Team Optic? Is, yeah. and they're both Team Optic guys. Is that a see? I don't know anything about this stuff. So, yeah. are they a Call of Duty specific tournament team? Like, how does that stuff? How does that work? Does yeah, that vary it, from team well, to team? Or? Yeah, I was going to say we should probably, you know, one of the things we need to be careful about, and we're even guilty of this, is a lot of times, so it's optic gaming. A lot of times we refer to them as a team, but the reality is we should refer to them as an organization. Hmm. They're a franchise made up of several esports teams, right? Okay. Which leads us to another point is that when we talk about esports, it's as ubiquitous as a term as using yeah. the word sport, yeah, right? So. Right. Um, with optic gaming in particular, and this is similar to a number of the teams that <laughs> I did it again, similar to a number of the organizations that we work with, is that they are actually compromised of of several teams that make up the franchise. Hmm. So with optic gaming in particular, they have a Call of Duty team, they have a Counter Strike team, they have a Halo team, and they also have a Gears of War team. Hmm. There's other teams that we work with that will have a League of Legends team or they have guys who participate in the fighting arena, which are things like Street Fighter. So it varies from organization, but yeah, we should definitely keep pinching ourselves to get back into the... Yeah, and and beyond the actual eSport part of it is that there's an entire group of guys that are associated with the organization that are um, straight-up personalities and and influencers within the space and content creators. So most of these guys have very large YouTube followings, you know, two, three million subscribers, um, huge Twitter footprints, and they're able to use that um, alongside, you know, the esports offering to kind of blow out whatever kind of objectives a, a brand would like to, you know, accomplish within the space. Yeah, give, give I, you've shared this with, with me um, before um, as I've poked your or prodded your your brain for some of these answers or explanations of this stuff, but like, what's an example? You don't have to, you know, necessarily give it, you know, exactly clients or even teams, but you know, you've talked something about they've got two, three million followers on YouTube and they've got big followers elsewhere on social media, and so it's not just watching them play in the specific tournament, but there's it's really becomes a lifestyle type thing, right? Not to be cliche, but. It's following them around, and they end up integrating a product that you work with, and you then are doing the deal in between them and the, the product, right? Is that that's your guy's role primarily? Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at the space, and again, we we approach esports or gaming through the lens of sport, but where there is a fundamental difference is that if you look at traditional leagues like the NFL the NBA, Major League Baseball, they have very strict social guidelines, Mm -hmm. not only for the teams, but the individuals, right? So if one of the individuals happened to tweet during a game, more than likely they would get in trouble from the franchise as well as the league. Just the opposite is the case within esports. These guys are at tournaments and they're tweeting what their actual thought is at the time, whether they're going to kick someone's ass, what they're frustrated with. Um, And that extends over into their lifestyle. So I think Esport individuals did a phenomenal job of really exploiting social media to their advantage to create their own individual brands as well as organizational brands. When you look at the social followings that the esport individuals have versus traditional sports, it's very lopsided. So esport individuals are very heavy on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Traditional sports it's all about Facebook. 
So literally when we put graphs next to each other, you'll see huge spikes on Facebook for traditional pro sports players and teams, but absolutely nothing on YouTube and even a lot of their Twitter, you know, except for top guys like a Kobe Bryant, even their Twitter followers are going to be really small. Esports, it's just the opposite. These guys have, one of the guys on the team that we represent, his name is Scump. He's got 2.3 million subscribers on YouTube, and he has, I think, 1.7 million followers on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We compared him to Marshawn Lynch, who has a ton of people who follow him on Facebook, but nobody follows him on any of the other social oh. platforms. And the reality is that's where that 18 to 34 demographic, where traditional sports are seeing all that attrition, that's really where that audience is living. Yeah, and I think the cool thing, too, is like you can't go have a catch with Drew Brees. Right. <laughs> like, like, and when Dan talks about a fundamental difference, I think this is a big part of it is that people are connected to the esport athletes. Um, they respond to tweets, they have conversations with the audience and they stream their gameplay on Twitch. And sometimes they'll play against people that follow them on Twitch. You know, so it's, it's one of those things where, um, there's a true connection between the fan and the athlete in a way that I, I don't think exists anywhere else in sport. That kind of really, you mentioned, that strikes a chord with me, the NASCAR model and that accessibility that they have, especially the, you know, 35 years ago, you're talking about the fans and that's why they let that sport has survived and fans understand that there has to be a sponsor integration into that because that's what pays the bills. So they understand there's they're selling outs, but they're also authentic at the same time because that's the stuff that keeps the team funded and the car on the road or these guys going to different tournaments. And that the interactivity where you know NASCAR would be, you'd be in the garage and you're walking by all the famous drivers and you can get up and see the car, talk to the crew, maybe even talk to the drivers. It's that kind of mentality. That's always, but to me, has been the problem of Major League Baseball or NFL. You're not going to be down on the sideline at the NFL game and wearing the headsets and hearing the, the coaches call the plays. You're in that in gaming. You're in that in NASCAR. And I think that's a differentiator. NASCAR has struggled actually to translate that to youth, whereas this is really sunk its teeth into it. We talked a little bit about Ken coming from an experiential marketing type background, moving over here and then seizing this like, hey, this is a combining my different interests with a ton of potential. What's your background? Is, is You could have been a, a sports agent. You could be a buyer, a media planner. You could be you know, an, an ad creative. What, what, what did you come from? Yeah, well, I'll save, you. <laughs> I'll save you from going through my entire background because I definitely did a lot of job hopping. Um, and it really had more to do with, I've always chased technology. I've seen technology as, I, I've always had a very steep interest in technology and I've just always seen it as an opportunity to bigger and better things. And quite frankly, it's constantly changing. So it's constantly interesting. Uh, but for me personally, I have what I would call a traditional sports and media sponsorship background. Mm-hmm. I started off in traditional, I, I, I was working for the NBC and Mutual Broadcasting Company uh, selling sports in radio. And if you can sell radio, you can pretty much sell anything. <laughs> um, but like I said, you know, I, I just kind of worked my way through the ranks. And then about 10 years ago, I landed at MTV in their games and entertainment unit. And one of the programs, or excuse me, one of the properties that I worked on was called Game Trailers. And at that time, Game Trailers, it was kind of like the YouTube for video gaming. Um, it was before YouTube actually really took off with people streaming and uploading videos. And the focus was primarily on gameplay and video game reviews. Mm-hmm. And I just could not get over 
the size of the audience. Right? I worked at MTV, and I'm like, this blows everything away, but no one is selling it. So I got to know a number of the guys on the leadership team there really well, just started looking at the space more and then seeing the level of engagement. And that's, that's what brought me into gaming in a, in a deep way, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. Um, and then from there, I went over to IGN, which is also another major gaming publisher, and they had a professional sports league that they launched called IPL. So it was basically IGN Pro League. And the first esports tournament that I went to was StarCraft II at the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. And there were like 5,000 people in the room. And for me, it was kind of like going to a sporting event, Comic-Con, and, 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 a, and a concert all rolled into one. Yeah. I mean, through all my years of sponsorship, you know, I, I, we'd sold sponsorships for the Who, the Rolling Stones, Notre Dame football, NCAA basketball, all the different sporting events I had gone to, all the different music events I'd gone to. I'd just never seen that level of engagement and enthusiasm. And I was, as I was looking at it around the room, I was just like, where the hell are the sponsors? Really? I mean, back then there was, there was only one endemic sponsor no one else and that's when the light bulb kind of went off i was like this is a gold mine and as i started as my career started to progress in esports and i went over to major league gaming what i realized is that the biggest problem that gaming had and that these leagues had is that they were approaching it through the lens of gaming and even to this day i would argue that a lot of brand marketers are still confused about gaming, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very ubiquitous term. I always tell people, like, when people say, hey, tell me about gaming, that's like me walking into Google and saying, tell me about the internet, yeah, right. right? There's a lot of different ways yeah, to break it enough. down. So um, that's really when it started to formulate in my mind that, hey, you know what? How am I going to sell this? What do marketers know? Marketers know sports. And if I start approaching this through the lens of sport and I start making analogies with sport, and if I start packaging this like sport, that, I, that literally was my gamble. And fortunately, it, it worked. <laughs> it worked. And when you say that, too, like you go a little deeper on, uh, you know, you're selling it like sport versus gaming. What would be a key difference between those two and approaches without giving away secret sauce? So, no, I mean, look, you <laughs> asked earlier about, you know, did I envision myself as being an, uh, an agent? No, I mean, I didn't get into the business 20 years ago with visions of being an agent of any sort. But like I said, I got to know a number of the team owners pretty well and fortunately gained their trust. And they saw some of the things I was doing with Major League Gaming. Um, I sold Major League Gaming's first major non-endemic sponsorship to Pizza Hut, which was a huge deal. So like I said, I got to know a number of the, the individuals really well. And as I gained their trust, it was literally like, look, let me take a look at some of your contracts. And as I looked at the contracts, I, again, having a traditional media background, I was looking at it and again, just saw a really, really uneven value exchange. And, uh, fortunately again, just gained the trust of a couple of these individuals and said, look, I'm not going to charge you anything, but let me go out and either renegotiate these contracts or let me go out and get you a new sponsor. I'm guessing was a lot of that stuff essentially trade deals, Uh, you know, like, to to just say okay yeah sure we'll take whatever some some, some equipment some whatever for the deal and yeah. you're looking at this saying for the millions of people you're reaching you should also you could do that and 
X amount of cash. Sure, whatever, right? Is that yeah. it's well, oversimplified, look, but... Yeah, this really kind of illustrates your point how things have progressed so much over the last couple of years. I would argue three or four years ago, a lot of these teams were able to get by because esports was a secondary job. Nate Shot is very vocal about the fact that he was working at McDonald's in gaming, right? And it really wasn't until his YouTube channel took off and a number of other things that he was able to quit that full-time job. But for a lot of the, the teams and the individuals, it was literally like, you know, the headset maker Astro or Turtle Beach would come in and say, hey, we'll give you headsets, um, keyboard makers, monitor companies, BenQ, right? So they're basically getting equipment for free, which is phenomenal because that definitely saves them some money. But where they started to have challenges is that as esports began to grow and as the prize pools began to get bigger, they needed to travel more. Right. So getting free equipment, that's cool. That only sustains you to what you can do locally. Once you have to start traveling, that's where I think sponsorship really started to become much more important. And how did you, again, I, I get that there's proprietary or, or whatever, don't want to give away the whole store, but in terms of valuation on that, it's hard enough to value what theoretically we have a lot of data and information on in Major League Baseball or NBA or whatever. Because you had well, you had TV numbers and audience numbers, and you've got it over a zillion years. And how did how did you help establish and bump up those some of those rates? But how did you help establish that legitimacy to the other? You know, when you're talking to a brand person, and go, you know, get them to understand. Yeah, you're still going to get your ROI and then some, even though you're paying ten times uh, of value on somebody. How did you help establish that? Uh, I'll let Ken chime in at some point, but quite <laughs> frankly, it was talking to 35-year-olds instead of 50-year-olds. Really? Yeah. Uh, you know, we in, in when I first started looking at the marketplace, I spent the majority of my time, quite frankly, trying to talk to the youngest people in the industry as possible because esports is so steeped in social media that when you go in and you talk to a 50, 55-year-old brand manager who's only interested in television and Nielsen, right. you just wind up going in circles. So we recognized early on that there was a social currency that really was not being taken advantage of, nor do I think anyone really knew how to present that social currency in the marketplace. So um, it's something that I started doing, but it's also something that once Ken came on board and we formed RevXP and we started getting deeper into some of the analytics and different ways to present it, we've been able to come up with what I what we've kind of established as a, as a social currency by the way we look at the analytics and the way we help clients measure ROI. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I wasn't kidding. I think where we've had a lot of success is typically when we run into younger brand managers who get social media, it's much easier to convince them that there is going to be a tangible ROI than talking to someone who's just really steeped in television. It's definitely changing. But. I mean, I think like, right, so a lot of brands right now, um, you know, something like an Adidas versus a Nike, right? Like creating that sort of aspirational model where they were able to go out and get the biggest influencers to, to work with Kanye to make the Yeezys. They created a personality through social media that is one, aspirational, but two, attainable for a lot of people that are out, you know, buying their products, right? And that's how they were able to I think propel themselves, you know, over the past couple of years um, to where they're at right now. And I think the same thing is, is, you know, 
kind of the same for, for esports where, you know, a lot of the, the value proposition does lie within social media, um, within their followings, within the community, within the engaged audience. Um, but to your point earlier, too, there, there is a lot of that traditional sports those traditional sports elements pulled into this as well, where you're getting logos on jerseys, you're getting, um, you know, broadcast numbers, you're seeing, you know, the amount of audience that are, are truly consuming this content. So it is kind of both of those those elements. One question I meant to go back to, we've talked a little bit about these these teams, and you talk about developing a relationship with the team owners. Who are, well, I, I know now it seems like I see Jerry Jones is buying a team. You know, a lot of NFL, NBA teams, team owners are buying or forming e-sports teams. So, but who was or who is the core group of team owners that you deal with on a daily basis? Who are those kind of people? Is it just gamers that have come up and risen to be the owner of the team or is it investors or, or what? Well, as you mentioned, yeah, a lot of traditional sports teams are getting involved, like the Jerry Jones and the Kraft family. To this point, though, it's still very much a grassroots enterprise. It's literally someone who is stuck with the organization for a number of years, right? There's always attrition with it, with every team, people coming and going. I mean, I would argue that at this point, for the most part, even though you see some traditional sports teams getting involved, but up to this point, it's literally who was sticking around the longest and who decided that they were going to start investing their own money and their own time and their own intelligence into actually creating an organization. It's very, very much grassroots. It's literally primarily young men who just came into the org early and decided to stay with it and build out a brand and build out a, build out a, a team. Definitely. I think, the growth up until this point has been primarily organic as well, where Dan said you have somebody that, um, you know, someone like Hector Rodriguez, who we work with from Optic, um, that is the, the CEO of Optic, you know, he saw uh, the opportunity really with YouTube and, and one, creating the audience was going to be creating his audience and his community and his followers and his fans were going to be the piece from an organizational standpoint that would help them um, become a, ma- a mainstay within uh, fans and, and you know the viewers with that. Well, when they're creating like content, say they're you know they've got a big YouTube following. Tell the people that aren't familiar with these personalities what what is that kind of content that gains them and keeps them these followers? What are they posting? Are they posting game strategy? Are they posting? I'm going to go take a nap. Are they yeah. posting? You know what what kind of stuff is up there? Is it all, <laughs> I mean, I all it, of the above? Yeah, yeah. All of the above. I, I think it's like constantly evolving, right? You have. Uh, it started off with gameplay, like sniper trick shots, like who could who could drop the most kills on a map or whatever whatever sort of gameplay right. with whatever they're playing, right? It, I think it started with that. But then um, a lot of the lifestyle pieces started getting pulled in. So people wanted to see more of what the, the players were up to outside of gaming. Gamers started moving into houses together. So Optic Gaming kind of... Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah, too. Yeah, so they started that model where um, all of the players really moved into one house together so that they could work on content together and benefit from each other's audiences and while still practicing for the tournaments and the esports events. So... Um, so yeah, the, and, the, the content because like, they have a house in the suburbs of they, Chicago. They do the yeah. optic guys do right, and yeah. it's how how many people are actually bunking up there what at a time, right? It's I think there's like eight people yeah. there right now, yeah. and and part of that YouTube and stuff content is them doing whatever. It might be them playing games. It might yeah. be them. Well, vlogging you know. is very popular right now too. So you have like the Casey Neistat's of the world that really kind of started that, and I think a lot of the 
the YouTube community has kind of latched onto that, and that's becoming a very, very popular um, form of content that that people are are consuming. Yeah, and what are they putting into when they're when they're blogging? What are they putting? What kind of content is it? I mean, it's or is it just all over the place? It's literally there like too? day in the life type stuff. Like even if you look at a guy like Jake Paul, you know, has massive, massive YouTube following or or PewDiePie, right? It's yeah. it's things where if you're not if you're not watching them on a daily basis or you just pull it up because you're like I'm curious what what this is all about, you're gonna watch it and be like, what the hell is this? Right. But if you're immersed in the content and you're you're following these guys along and there are millions of people that are doing this, then it, it's really entertaining. Yeah. You need to keep in mind that esports, just like traditional sports, is steeped in aspiration, right? So a lot of the people that are tuning in, yeah, part of it is they have aspirations of just being really good at a game, whether they have aspirations to become pro, right? Like, I mean, I enjoy playing basketball. So back in the day, if I was able to watch Michael Jordan videos about how he sets up certain shots, right? right, I'm just going to consume that. So I think what esports has done a really good job of is there's that type of content where they're very transparent. It's funny. uh, I was talking to one of the guys on the team a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, why, why do you feel comfortable presenting your strategy and how you do things? And he said, because I'm the best. He's like, I don't care if I tell people how to do it. Well, his attitude was like, look, man, I'm not giving away the secret. My attitude is like, I'm the only one who can really do this and do it this quickly, right? A couple of years from now, maybe he can't do it that quickly, but he's like, I'm the only one who can slide this way. No one else, even I tell people how I do it, no one's been able to figure it out. The other part of it is like Ken said, it's lifestyle. It's like, you know, you would love to be able to see what it's like to be the day in the life of a rock star or a professional player and how they mix in their professional, um, how they, you know, their professional job mixes in with their personal life. It's good and it's bad. It's good that these guys are incredibly transparent with the way they present themselves. I would argue that it's bad because um, they're on 24-7. They're constantly under a microscope. Well, doesn't that scare you? you two in particular, like, oh, you know, you know these guys and uh, they're going to say something or do something that may be authentic but might blow up a sponsorship deal or or scare off a sponsor or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, look, for the most part, I think the guys that are been doing this for a while and that are pros, well, sure. they, they kind of get that. That's why they're at the level. That yeah. And at, look, I but mean, I, but that also lends to its authenticity, right? They're not perfect and they show on, I mean, they'll talk about their emotions. Sometimes they screw things up. Um, and they don't hold back. So, yeah, it's kind of a balancing act, but I think that the industry in general, and we've figured out a pretty good way to present content to the sponsors um, that's very comfortable for the sponsors to embrace and that it's also comfortable for the guys to execute. Yeah, and part of that, too, is... is Are you giving... No, no, you go ahead. I'll keep the question. Go ahead. Part of that is what? No, I was just going to say part of that is just educational, too. You have to remember that a lot of the players and and people that are involved in esports are, you know, 17 to 25, right? So there's definitely a learning curve there when it comes to, you know, how do you present yourself on social media? Yeah, you definitely want that transparency and that organic sort of um, interaction with the audience. But there are... Um, there are guidelines within that, and, and we work with the players on that element. That was my question. Yeah. Was I, I was assuming that there's a role that you can and do play with them as advisors of, yeah. you know, hey, or let's walk through this before you do it. And how yeah, I think one of, one of the challenges this? is that, and look, it's not just esports. 
it's there are certain things that are really friggin cool to a 22 year old regardless of whether or not they're in esports right that just <laughs> right. is not going to be cool to a 40 year old brand manager at a fortune 500 company right so i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that it, it's a reflection of esports i would just say like anything else you know some 20 year old kid drops out of college and he's going into the nba right there's He's going to need certain mentoring. He's going to need certain education. He's going to need certain guidance. And esports is is no different. But again, we see it as more teaching a twenty year old how to present himself or herself in a responsible way. You know, with with your role, are you too out on the road a ton? Because there's got to be tournaments just nonstop across, even within certain game titles, then you've got all these different, you mentioned all these different titles that all have their own tournaments and stuff. How, how do you balance that of being out there, you're trying to know what's going on, you're trying to you know, be, be at the forefront, you're trying to probably recruit new talent to work with, you're trying to make sure your brands that you're working with are happy. How are you finding time to do that? Because how many other people do you even have on your team? Is it, is it pretty much you two? <laughs> uh, Ken and I are the leads, but we definitely have two other people that work directly with us. So I would say that we're we're definitely the higher level liaisons between do you just the kind of divide and, the and conquer between the four of you and just pick which are the most. Well, I started laughing ones? because when you talk about how do we balance it, right. I don't know that we've actually figured out a way to balance our no, time. No, there's no yet. balance. <laughs> <right now>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I'll let Ken expound a little bit more on it, but yeah, I mean we. We have a ground game where we try to get to as many events as we can across a variety of game titles Mm -hmm. because this space is evolving very quickly. And unless you're actually on the ground, I don't think you can really keep up with it. It's you can't just read about it. You have to participate. Yeah. And even, even from when I came into the industry, um, things have definitely, um, tightened up in terms of scheduling and, and knowing when events are happening. I think even a year ago, um, you just straight up couldn't find out when things were happening unless you were like plugged in and following the right people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty crazy. And you know, esports at this point is is 365. There's tournaments almost daily. I mean, I'm sure they're daily, but on a a, a large scale, um, definitely monthly. Like what at are the very least? What are the what are the big ones right now? That I think the top esport right now is League of Legends, mm-hmm. Dota two. Uh, you know. What else? But, uh, yeah, that's strictly in terms of total engagement right. on a global basis, right. right? So League of Legends and Dota have an incredibly enormous following on a global basis. Um, and that's the people that are playing, the people that right. are viewing. Behind that, I think you could argue Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike has yeah. a pretty good global presence. Um, not as much penetration in China and the Koreas but definitely uh, a nice global presence. Big following in Australia, big following in Europe, big following here in North America. Um, here in North America, I'd say Call of Duty is definitely one of uh, Activision's events are probably some of the most, most followed. There are definitely games, leagues, teams that have more of a regional following versus a global mm-hmm. following. Uh, and but that's where we kind of sit yeah. in space too. Well, and I think that's important that. too when you're working with brands, right? Like everyone sees League of Legends, and everyone's like, "Holy shit!" There's how many people watching right. this? And that's huge, and that's like it's very impressive. But you have to remember that a big part of that audience is in Asia. So if you're a brand that's looking to promote your product, you know, domestically, 
League of Legends might not make that much sense. Not only that, but their audience isn't engaged in the same way as a Call of Duty person might be engaged. So, uh, you know, there are definitely some nuances there, and looking at it as different sports is the the right way. Yeah, that's what that's exactly what I was going to say. Is thinking of the model of it as a sport in, instead of the gaming is well, it depends. What's your you got to talk to the brands? Who are you trying to reach? What's the product? What's the messaging? What's the target? All that stuff, and then okay, we know this stuff pretty much inside and out. Here's the right teams or personalities or titles or whatever that you work with. I mean, see, and what's different from this too? We didn't really talk about this, but for for newbies and, and lightweights in, in uh, esports space, is there's not um, necessarily tournament production companies that are out there that produce these independently. It's typically, even when you said Activision or something, somebody, the folks that are the software, the, the titles, and they're producing it because they own the soft, so it has to run through them, right? Well, yes and no. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, well, yeah, like I, I mean, no, there are, well, look, Activision uh, absorbed or, or they bought Major League Gaming a couple of years ago, right? So Major League Gaming is phenomenal at putting events together. So technically, yeah, underneath the Activision umbrella, you have Major League Gaming that is really their event arm. Um, but then you have companies out there like ESL where, um, you know, depending on the, the title or something like a Counter-Strike in Valve, Valve primarily uses uh, either E-League, right, Turner, to hold their tournaments or something like an ESL. So um, it really depends on the IP, but some of them are independently run where they actually run everything under their own roof. And then there are other IPs or other games where they may utilize outside production companies to come in. Again, very similar to traditional sports. Yeah. Now, the I just saw something, and I think this was, was, uh, was you guys were heavily involved with this, was a, an announcement about Chipotle sponsoring Optic. Was that something that you guys were in, involved with or, or not? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a deal that we put together. And did they sponsor across the whole team or were they sponsoring within, you know, like the Call of Duty team or something so like that? So they sponsored that? the entire organization. Yeah, organization. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <We've>, you, <laughs> come on, Chris. Come on. Um, yeah. So organization. They, yeah, Doesn't so matter. <laughs> we'll screw it up before the end yeah. of the interview too. <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, they sponsored the entire organization. Again, it was something that we we had been working on for for quite a while and i think from our standpoint too um it took quite a bit of education on what is esports you know several you know several rounds of meetings where we're just sort of educating the upper brass on on <laughs> what this thing is and how it works and what the true value proposition mm-hmm. is and how you guys can actually make this work so uh, yeah, we launched that. What was it, last week? It seems like longer ago. But <laughs> it yeah, feels it was, like it's something about like yeah. that last week, yeah, no, ten I mean, days it ago. Blew up. It was it was pretty exciting to watch unfold in real time. Well, you talk about mainstream media and all like that. If I'm seeing it, then that's really out there in all the trades and all that kind of a thing. Not just within that niche. Yeah, uh, or not niche. Yeah, I think, but I think it was really the, fun to work with Chipotle, and I think this goes along with a number of the other partners and sponsors that we work with is we work very closely with them to come up with best practices to engage. The old days of just throwing your logo right, up and expecting to right. get a return on something, that, that's not going to fly in esports. So our mantra is like, look, you, you, you cannot just be present. You need to participate. So we basically back in the ROIs, we look at what their, what their objectives are, and then we figure out, okay, based on your objectives, how do you then bring value into the space? And I think that's where Chipotle was 
really good to work with is they said, hey, we when we get involved in this space, we want to make sure that we're bringing value and we're not just right. right we're not just. And that. of course, then they need to go activate it. Are you? Do you guys then activate or manage activation, or does that get turned over to? Whether it's Revolution or another agency, how, how do you? I mean, I'm, yeah. With your both of your experience, you can give some great recommendations on what to do. But is that then done in house, or does that get farmed out? Yeah, that's all done in house. So we have it's one of two things. One, I mean, primarily it's done in house, right? So we have Revolution services um, at our disposal if should we need them, right? So there's an entire media department, there's a creative department. We have an excellent creative director that is a, a great guy uh, to work with and collaborate on, on projects like this. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of, once that sort of hits, it sort of, it falls into your traditional marketing, you know, project management sort of world, I guess. But you're in, involved in all that, it sounds like smartly, yeah. helping to sell you guys, but that you're involved in that stuff that it's not just slapping a logo. That's yeah. kind of where I'm going at, Oh yeah, right? yeah, no, so it's all strategy driven, right? And I think that's, you know, from a, uh, just a consultancy standpoint with the brands, the, the brands that we've worked with have resonated very well with the audience because we help the brand managers craft the tweets that mm-hmm. they're sending out. I mean, from, from, from soup to nuts with, with, with each, each of the programs we're involved from, you know, from the simplest to the most complex of activations. Um, obviously there's, you know, there's certain brands that are less nimble than others. And we, we understand that, right. You have, confines that we need to work yeah, with. Who is but that? Who, who are you having the most trouble with? Who's, <laughs> who's the least flexible? Let's name names. <laughs> no, not going to yeah. give me any names. No. So no, I, no I, I'd say one of the challenges we have is, uh, quite frankly, when new, especially non-endemics, the, the, which is really where we try to focus a lot mm-hmm. of our effort. But when they get into the space, as Ken mentioned, there's a lot of education, but because it's new and because a lot of these non-endemics are the first to get in, they see such incredible engagement over such a short amount of time. I mean, we've illustrated with a lot of our clients that their ROI on their investment, they'll get it back like within literally a week to a month, right? It might be a year long partnership, but within a month, they literally get all that money back. Um, But I, I think part of the challenge is that when you see that level of engagement that quickly, Mm -hmm. even though we're going out to space with a very specific strategy, it's very difficult for people at the brand level to not look at that and go, well, right. Because that, okay, let's, it, now they want to like engage and do a million other things. And then we just have right. to kind of temper and be like, no man, still, slow and steady. Let's stay with the original plan. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a good problem. To it's have. A, yeah. Right. That's a great problem to have versus what happens a lot is, oh, I don't know if we're going to do it. It's kind of, you know, do we really have the money? Is this really going to pay off? And then, okay, well, we'll do a test. And then it's done at best half-ass, probably more like one-tenth ass of the amount of investment and time that's put into it because, well, we're just going to test this out and it's not going to work. What's what's the next kind of big thing or what's some stuff that you're focusing on? Where do you, you know, do you see something adding? Are you pushing for people to get more involved in one thing over another because you see it taking off? I mean, we've really got our ear to the ground on everything that's evolving within the space. There's definitely some staples meaning leagues or games that are very well established. But because of the fact that it is eSports, uh, a game could come out of nowhere mm-hmm. and literally take the entire community by storm. So, you know, we'll get asked often, where, you know, what do you guys think is next? The reality is the community is going to decide what's next. You see all this investment coming in from even the publishers, right? Like wh- what we need to tell people is like money doesn't necessarily equal success. 
So what we've seen mm-hmm. is with some particular games, the publishers coming in and putting crazy prize pools behind them, that doesn't necessarily drive additional engagement. It doesn't necessarily drive additional interest. Um, and there's a couple of examples where the publishers have come in and they put a lot of money behind a title. And while the production level levels up, that doesn't necessarily equate to more interest in the game. Mm. Um, H1Z1, we saw, you know, it's been on our radar for a while, but it pretty much came out of nowhere. We saw a lot of the pro players participating in it kind of part-time. It was just very much a community grassroots evolution. But then literally over the last four to five months or four to five weeks, we now see a shift of the audience going from H1Z1 to PUBG, which is pretty much the same game, right? Yeah, it's but, like a very similar model. But again, it's it's the community migrated to something new, right? Everyone got hyped on H1Z1 because there were so many people playing it. And you, you started seeing, you know, leagues form, investment kind of come in on it, and then just sort of went away. Well, so, how do you, when you talk about your ear to the ground, too, what's, how do you ensure to stay out in, in front and stay on top of that and make sure you're monitoring these trends that change almost week to week? We talk to the players. Really? Right? We talk to the, to the pros. But, we uh, talk to the influencers. Yeah, but it's even, I mean, even talking to, I would say that we've got really good relationships with the publishers the individual team owners, um, individual teams, individuals at pro players, um, but also, you know, don't want to discount the relationship that we have with the various leagues and publishers because the reality is they see on a day-to-day basis shifts from the community. To Ken's point, like, the PUBG is a really good example where with H1Z1, we could literally hear the community saying, we want these types of changes in the game. Mm-hmm. And if the publisher is slow to respond and someone else steps up to the plate, you can very quickly lose your place in line. And that's, I think, a very good example of what we saw with H1Z1 and and PUBG is that the publisher kind of got back on their heels and someone else came in and said, you know what, we're listening to you. Here you go. Here it is. And everyone kind of jumped on it. So, but again, I think it's a combination of, you know, first and foremost, as Ken mentioned, the players for sure, just because they're so steeped in the community. But on a higher level, definitely talking to the various leagues and publishers because they're reliant on the audience for success. All right. Well, I think this was an outstanding conversation and a breakdown of, of how esports is shaping up and what you guys are doing here at, at Rev XP. Uh, any, you know, one final thought, I guess, would be because we talk about networking painlessly, would be any recommendations for folks, whether they're, you know, just graduating to, they have a bunch of experience but are interested in getting more into this space. What's the best way to, you know, to connect with people within the space and, and, you know, break through and, and get that job doing the kind of stuff that you're doing. There's definitely a number of organized conferences that are taking place at various cities, primarily in New York and L.A. But beyond that, quite frankly, I think just going to tournaments. I mean, to hmm. this point, you're still going to run into team owners. You're going to run into league operators. You're going to run into guys like us at, at major events. So, I, And, I mean, it's simple, too, with that probably of just, you know, hey, what, what are you guys doing? How, how did you get into the business? You know, what would you recommend for me to do? Just some of those basic questions. You know, we joke about it, but it's true. None of this is rocket science. You're just trying to strike up the relationships, pick a brain, get in with some one person is all it takes that says, hey, you, come be an intern or come, 
you know, help do this project for us, and now you're in. So, I mean, there's, it's not a magic solution other than you guys hear very unique charms that you bring. Or it's coming and going to a meeting, right? Kind of like, yeah, yeah I'm you interested. You have to put yourself in, out there, and you have to yeah. kind of trust your instincts and uh, try to network with the right people. Well said. Ken Olson, Dan Ciccone. Did I get it right? Sweet. I had, to, I had to write it down phonetically on the piece of paper. Dan and Ken, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both very much for joining me today on the Painless Podcast. Thank Thanks, you. Chris. Hope you enjoyed my chat there with Ken and Dan at RevXP on eSports. Found it informative. I know I did. Real quick, before you go, reminder, all spike ballers, if you're a fan, get out and watch the national championships on october 14th and uh, interested in playing at all get 50 percent off your team entry into spikeball nationals with our code painless get to www.usaspikeball.com today to get your spot use that code painless and get in for half off all right well thank you for listening today the 26 previous painless podcasts of i'm a little biased but i think they're all well worth a listen Dave Ladd from Stats was terrific last week. Bob Fallon, the commissioner of the US, USHL, U.S. Hockey League. You know, favorite of mine, the PA voice of basically all of Chicago sports, Gene Honda. Check, check those out. Uh, first episodes of The Fadeaway with Dion Thomas and Eric Schmidt are also in the feed. Episode 3 comes tomorrow, as I mentioned at the beginning. So keep an eye on those. Subscribe, review, rate. It's all very helpful, much appreciated, so you don't miss any Painless Podcasts or the Fadeaway episodes. All right, until next time, I'm out of here. This is Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. Stay connected, friends.